Today, we talk why restaurants fail Drake's new restaurant. I can't believe that's a thing. My thoughts on that 42 Grams documentary, a new YouTube channel I'm actually a pretty huge fan of lately, eating out at restaurants alone, and one of my favorite pastry shops is going international. Welcome back to the show, folks. My name is Justin Kana, and this is episode 52 of the Emulsion. If you're new here, this is a show where I talk all about the news stories and industry happenings that matter to me as I'm navigating my own career as a professional chef. I got to give a shout out to our sponsor first, you guys, at least the ones of you that are generous enough to support me on Patreon. Starts as little as $1 a month, and it doesn't seem like a lot, but it really does help me get closer to doing this internet thing full time. So if you want to sponsor this show, you can do so for just a dollar on patreon.com slash Kana. I would really appreciate it. I have one more second personal plug here if you're interested in signing up for my bi-weekly newsletter. The next one will be coming out either, I'm I'm thinking Monday is going to be the day that I send these out. Uh, I include discounted gear that I find or get offered, articles that I'm enjoying or have covered here on the show, new videos that I've released, inspiration for you, either through videos or quotes or photos or new dish ideas. It's all included as kind of a way for me to bring value into your inbox. I'm not wanting it to be spammy at all. I just want it to be filled with great stuff every single time you get a little notification from me. So if you want to sign up for that, go ahead and check out justincona.com newsletter and you can take it from there. Today's beverage, I have two beverages actually. I have my water bottle there, which I probably should be drinking, but I did just brew a um, my afternoon cup of, uh, can you see it? There's a J on it. And I got me this a long time ago. For those of you watching the show for a long time, you know this mug. But it is some uh, Four Sigmatic mushroom coffee in there is what I'm currently drinking. It's it's my preferred, only because I don't have to brew another cup of coffee, it is like powder, so you just need hot water, and um, it also is less caffeine. I, I'm almost positive it's less caffeine than a normal cup of coffee. It's a little bit earthier, um, and it just kind of makes sure that my afternoon can be more productive than a kind of stir-crazy latte kind of caffeine jolt. But first story today comes from Foodable Network. Have any of you guys heard of that? Uh, before. Foodable Network is a site that I've never heard of before, but Andrew Carlson is the author of this article. They he, he just published an article called, quote, the number one reason why restaurants fail and what to do about it, end quote. So I personally anticipated this to be kind of like a statistical study, uh, some numbers, which you guys know I love covering, or like a breakdown of industry trends and some predictions for what's to happen. But it's essentially a motivational style piece. And after doing some digging into the author, this Andrew Carlson guy, he is a speaker slash coach. So this totally makes sense why he wrote this way. I'm not, offend- I'm not, uh, no offense at all. But uh, if you own or if you manage a restaurant and you're having problems, I would advise, I wouldn't advise you not to read this if that makes sense. And spoiler alert, the three things that he wants you to take away is one, have systems, two, fix your mindset, and three, make sure you're executing on your vision. So I can't hate on this, right? Because it's seriously the, the advice that I would give too. 
and it's something that I'm keeping in my mind every single day as I think about my own projects and my own ambitions. It's one of the reasons why I stopped trying to be something that I'm not, right? I really thought that I could crush the kind of local Pacific Northwest-inspired game being here in Seattle, but it turns out it's not a vision that I'm excited about, and I don't truly love Pacific Northwest food. One, because no one really knows what Pacific Northwest food is, and two, I'm super quick to poke holes in other chefs or other people's philosophies. So if you aren't 100% behind it, the vision that you've set for yourself, then your mindset starts to dissolve, and then it's completely over. So I felt bad when... um, I personally helped bring on someone from India to the restaurant in Norway because he was interested in learning about Scandinavian food. He did a stage at Noma. He was like, seemed super interested, but then he had zero interest in the vision for the restaurant, which was to execute on Norwegian West Coast food. And he ended up leaving the restaurant because of it. So a lot of this article is heavy on the motivation. You're not going to find a lot of statistics here. It's a lot of uh, exaggerated, uh, very quotable sentences. So if you need a hit of that, it definitely hit up that article. It's linked up in the show notes. But overall, um, I think it should serve more as a framework for you than an actual reading piece. Um, so, some easily answerable questions for you if and when you start your own thing, right? Like, you should have these ready to go. What is your vision? Uh, what were the other two? What are your systems? And what is, like, is your mindset okay to do this? That, that to me, is more important than anything else. Uh, and that's why I'm saying that you should think of, you should be able to answer these questions if and when you start your own thing. So, with this channel, my personal brand, the vision is to help the next generation. I'm sick and tired of hearing about chefs say that there's no good talent or strong cooks are hard to find. Um, I'm putting it out there. I am a better line cook than you. I will say it straight up here. If you put me on the line, me versus you, I will be putting out better food, cleaner, and more effectively than you after two weeks. I'm just confident as shit that that is my strength. So I'm taking this time out in my career to give back. I want to share what I do, what I know, not because I'm like I'm sitting on a pedestal and I'm holier than thou, but because I used to get sent home. I used to be not good. I was so insecure that I had all these Michelin stars on my resume and I couldn't really cook on a line. So I know how that feels and I wouldn't wish that on anyone. So all the videos, this podcast is all to help you, to inspire you, to teach you. That's the vision. And it took me a long time to figure that out. And the mindset thing... Um, moving on to his second point is all you, right? Like I could literally come to your restaurant and coach you, but if you're like that Indian guy that I was talking about and you don't get excited about the food or if you're in the, in it for the wrong reasons, or if you've given up in your own head, it's not going to work, right? Like for me, I meditate daily. I use headspace as someone who wasn't a fan at all of the idea of meditation. I'm good. Um, I'm on, I'm serious. I was seriously skeptical when I started to meditate, but it takes about a month for you to start to see the value in what your subconscious has on your mental health and your performance. Uh, another hack that I actually include in the show just to get it out in the, is to get out of the industry every once in a while. It's one of the reasons why I include that story at the end to give you something outside of um, your prep list or sous chef drama or server issues and all of that and just come to grips with the fact that it's just food, right? Like I know it pays your bills. I know it doesn't change how people react or how people treat you. But if you can get to that higher place where you just see that it's just food, then 
it helps a lot. I, I also apologize if I'm getting really kind of like empathetic and emotionally involved right now. It's just, uh, I watched the 42 Grams documentary on Netflix with my girlfriend this week, and I'm seriously like super depressed about it. Uh, I'll definitely get that to that in a second, but I want to finish this up. Uh, what was the last one? Uh, systems. So systems are one of the reasons why I think I'm a better line cook than you. It's just one of the reasons that I think my prep list video is so important. And when the article is talking about systems, it means, quote, when you create strong systems, systems, your business flourishes because you don't have to worry about whether or not something is getting done. So because, so for me, a system that I've been doing for the past two weeks is to use a combo of Google Sheets and Trello for all my videos. It allows me to forecast. I have a checklist that goes along with every video to make sure everything is linked up properly. And what this means for you, how do you create systems in your own work? It's a principle that I definitely covered in that prep list video that I mentioned. If you want to find it, just search Justin Kana prep list on YouTube and you'll find it. But how do you automate, right? Like how do you create consistency or how do you create foolproof workarounds um, to creatively solve problems? That's what you should be thinking about. And it's one of the shitty parts about this article. It's super clickbaity and there's not a ton of meat in it. Like I said, it's just a bunch of very quotable sentences. But I wanted to give you some examples so you can apply this uh, idea in your own life. Um, a system that I did at the restaurant in Norway was uh, what we used to do at the end of the night was to have the sous chef, who was me, sit at the pass with the laptop with an open email to the produce company and everyone just kind of shouted out their orders, right? Like, I need three kilos of carrots and two bunches of watercress whatever. And after a ton of issues with people either forgetting to order things or last minute add-ons, I said no more. And I hung hooks on the wall with clipboards and all the guys and girls on the line were responsible for writing their own orders on these spreadsheets that I made. And if they weren't written down before they clocked out, it wasn't going to show up the next day. And that also made it at least three times faster for me to fill out the email because I was just transcribing, right? I was just transferring from one thing to the other. Um, and it worked. So hopefully, um, Andrew Carlson, the author of this article, I've taken your reasons that a restaurant fails and turned it into something usable. But, you know, no offense, but I mean, come on, right? So next up, uh, and Thomas is actually uh, commenting on this right now. Um, I teased it already, 42 grams. Let's talk about it. So for those of you that don't know, there is a documentary out on Netflix about this restaurant that got two Michelin stars in its first year opening. Uh, they started off as an underground dining concept in Chicago called Sue Rising, S-O-U-S, Rising, and they got their own brick-and-mortar space. It is a husband and wife team. It is all about their story through that process. I'm not going to spoil anything for you folks, but I had a hilarious exchange with one of my best friends. We were joking why Chicago chef documentaries are so bad and emotional and always end violently. I mean, we just talked about Grace closing, uh, so I have a theory. I'm going to attempt to tackle this. So back in the day, Charlie Trotter, who everyone knows was kind of a nutcase, had this incredibly successful restaurant, right? And his food was ambitious, he, but he was a horrible, horrible manager. And that style of restaurant attracts a certain type of person, right? Like, I mean, I've even felt, I even felt super compelled at the end of 42 Grams documentary to open up a fine dining spot. Uh, the idea of changing the game is attractive. And I have no doubt that you are just like me. And when someone tells you that you can't do something, it makes you want to do it even more. And I'm not blaming all of this on Charlie Trotter, but there's no denying that culture is still very much so that way in Chicago today. It is still abusive in some places. It is passive aggressive. There are pushy restaurants. That's the, kind of like the norm, like push, push, push. And frankly, it's unsustainable, right? And it's not healthy. And 
a city that's known for boundary-pushing restaurants attracts people that can handle it and people who even want that abuse, who feel like it's necessary to take those steps in their career. The movie cites this guy who worked for free for Charlie Trotter for a year, uh, which is just crazy. Uh, and so it's a cycle that continues, right? And I was a huge fan of uh, his rant on chefs and not being in the restaurant and his desire to be in the space every night. That's something that I also hold very near and dear, so I connected with that. But his management style was just horrendously bad, right? Like, it was just frankly embarrassing to watch. And I feel like only now, now that all of these stories are coming forward, people are noticing that it's not cool to be that kind of chef, we are finally starting to see being kind become cool. And even after the story that we mentioned last week with all these food critics who are refusing to critique restaurants where either there's a red star on your name, like you've had a sexual harassment allegation or you're not paying your staff, restaurant critics won't review you. And that's just becoming the norm. But it's still going to take some time, right? I, it's not it's not going to happen overnight, and I do feel like it's going to happen soon. But the other thing that I took away from this movie was the story, right? Chef Jake had zero story to go along with his food. And the flavors look phenomenal, right? His technique was great. He makes great-looking food. But he went on so many rants about he's, how he's kind of just put he's putting himself on a plate, in air quotes. And I'm like, dude, is duck, green bean, and umeboshi you? Like, is that you on a plate? And, like, just why why not just say what it is? Say that you think it sounds good. Say that you think it's a great combination. Say that you copied it from another chef. It's really hard when you have a giant ego to not do that, right? Like, I have a dish uh, coming up on the menu we're doing in two weeks called Jose's Pre-Dessert because I'm literally ripping it off from a friend of mine in Gothenburg, Sweden. And it's the reason why Rene Redzepi wins. It's because Noma has a story to tell, right? Favikin's the same thing in Central in Peru. And it's all these places have something to say. And these chefs that learn techniques at Michelin-starred places and have an insane skill set, like their their execution is beyond belief, but when it comes down to putting your name on something, it's really hard to figure out what you want to say. And because a lot of this is, is this kind of Frankenstein of what you've learned over the past 10 years. You kind of combine all these techniques from all these restaurants. And the problem is a lot of people get to the end of these movies or this stage and they get it in their head that they're smart enough to do it differently, right? To have a standalone fine dining restaurant and be successful and I'm not talking about Michelin stars, I'm talking about like real success, like having a sustainable work environment and healthy profit margins and happy people and happy guests. That's hard, right? That That's really, really hard. Uh, and Grace showed me that my experience at Grace showed me, this documentary showed me that Michelin is not hard. And I'm going to say it again, Michelin, it is is not hard. It is easy to do pretty food, to design a nice dining room, to buy nice silverware, to hire a bunch of ambitious people at minimum wage, execute for 24 months, and you've got multiple stars, right? Like, there's a clear blueprint for that. It's happened before. And the problem is, if that's your goal, if you start off with doing something to prove to whoever it is that you're trying to prove wrong, that you'll get there after three years, and then you'll realize that you still have 40 years left of your career. And that's when the problems happen. That's when stuff starts to go south. So it's why I'm not going for a standalone fine dining spot. I'm very much so in that place now. I've stopped saying local because I get produce from Mexico sometimes. It's just how it goes. I've stopped saying Pacific Northwest because no one actually knows what Pacific Northwest food is. I'm saying that I'm cooking for fun. I'm cooking to share my ideas just to cook. I just want to cook. And that's what I want to say right now. And that what I want to say is going to change. It's going to evolve. And it took me a whole year of doing dinners and peacocking around to figure that out. But damn, 
it's getting real on the show today. Ernesto, I'm not I'm not talking shit on food from Mexico. I'm just saying it's not exactly local for someone like me up here in Seattle. So overall, thumbs down for the chef. Thumbs decently high for the documentary itself. It was entertaining. If you're into food and want your own restaurant, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from that documentary. But it makes me even that much more motivated to continue creating in the way that I am because the next generation deserves way better than Jake What's-His-Face. So next, let's take a little more lighthearted story now, shall we? There's this YouTuber from France. His name is Alex. His, Al- his channel is called Alex French Guy Cooking. And if I had to describe it, it's like if Casey Neistat was French. And I don't even say loved food because I just feel like all French people love food. But he just fools around experimenting with food and machines and equipment. Like he makes his own knives and he just did a video where he like bought a pasta machine from China and like took it apart and re-put it together and makes ramen with it. Like he edits all of his own stuff. He's really good at video editing and telling a story and his accent's awesome. He's just awesome. I've been really enjoying his hilarious videos. So if you guys want to break from the serious cooking shows out there, definitely check him out. Again, that's Alex French Guy Cooking. You can search it on YouTube. Uh, I did send him a DM. I'm trying to get him on as a guest for this podcast, but we will see what happens with that. Next up, I want to talk about Drake's new restaurant in Toronto. Again, like I said in the intro, intro I can't believe that it's actually a thing that Drake has a restaurant mushroom coffee sip. It is called Pick 6. It is spelled P-I-C-K space, the number 6 I-X. And he's got a chef from Montreal running it named Antonio Park. It is a combo of a restaurant lounge, sports bar, and a restaurant, sorry, a restaurant, a lounge, and a sports bar which is very similar to Jay-Z's spot in New York City. I think it's crazy to hear that there's 178 seats in that, in this uh, space. And as far as how they're going to fill those seats, Chef Park says, quote, it's something affordable for everyone, and I want to provide for families and couples who wouldn't normally go to a sports bar, end quote. So that means checks at around $50 a person. Drake kind of contributed to the menu. The article says that he, he, uh, he told the chef that he likes broccoli, so, quote, We did a broccoli dish where we blanch it, cover it with Japanese seasonings like nori and miso, and some mizuna, top it with cheese, and then it's finished in the oven, end quote. I don't know if I'd want to eat that. Anyways, while Drizzy is in town, Pick 6 will have a VIP room at the front of the space and a separate private room for Drake in the back. And when Drake isn't around, non-famous guests are allowed to rent out the room. It's an interesting uh, way to quote it like that, non-famous guests. So let's see what happens. There's a lot of diversity in this menu. Quote, it's 30 items, including the raw bar that does seafood platters, sushi, and sashimi. We're going to have a lot of salads, duck, beef, chicken, and some Korean dishes like braised short ribs. We're doing a simple Ontario beef burger with a spicy gochujang teriyaki sauce finished with provolone. There's a tiradito, which is like a ceviche, but the fish is cut like sashimi rather than in cubes, end quote. And again, back to the stories that we talked about with larger companies getting into the restaurant game. The only way that I see this restaurant actually failing is if there's kind of a management vision issue. If Drake doesn't agree with Chef Park or if Chef Park has to spend six months in Montreal and his chef de cuisine has some issues with either guests or with Drake himself, uh, funding is definitely not a problem with a project like this because once the place is open, it doesn't really matter if it's profitable because Drake isn't in the restaurant game to make money. It is secondary. It's a place for him to go when he's back in Toronto to bring his friends to hold parties. And I personally see this emerging as a trend. 
I also don't necessarily see it as a bad thing, and maybe this goes back to the vision thing that we talked about before. If you want to cook and serve people food, maybe it's smart for us chefs to take a secondary seat to these companies that are making bigger, big profits in other industries and other avenues. And they see value in what we do as chefs in bringing people together over food. But again, not saying you should just ditch your day job and go work for Sony's new restaurant or whatever happens. Just, it's just something to be aware of as you progress yourself. It's not something that I would have even thought of at the beginning of my career. Like, oh, I can be a part of JBL. Like JBL wants a restaurant in whatever city they live in. And I can be the chef at that restaurant, and it's a win-win for everyone. Like, that's crazy. Um, but it's something that you can think about as you're moving forward, and just something that made me stop and ponder. So next up, Eater did a interesting profile on dining alone. They actually released two articles over the last few days. One is called, quote, how to be an exemplary solo diner, end quote. And the other one is called, quote, how restaurants can make solo dining extraordinary, end quote. And I have to say, it's fantastic to see a topic covered from Eater from two different perspectives by two different journalists. Uh, one of these is from the perspective of giving advice to the diner, and one is giving perspective on advice to the restaurant. So I will spare you some of the details because some of you might just not like eating out alone. I know I have friends who never do it, but I definitely enjoy going out by myself, uh, making friends with the staff. It really lets you focus on the meal. And actually, in the second article, Will Gadara from EMP says it perfectly, quote, to build a relationship in the beginning of the meal, you need to enter it on a foundational level of formality. And then you can't become too comfortable with people until they've given us permission to let our guard down. I think with solo diners, that's especially important because maybe we can be their company, end quote. And I am 100% the guy who breaks down the wall immediately and asks that person like where they're from and what they would order and all of that. I love becoming friends with the staff of a restaurant when I go out to eat by myself. But uh, from the first article, How to Be a Good Solo Diner, um, I'm going to read down the, the, the points for you real swift to save you some time. One, know when, know when to go. Uh, early or late, spoiler alert. Number two, know where to sit. Again, spoiler, spoiler alert, at the bar. Three, don't linger, saying you should be in and out in under 90 minutes. That is the advice that Eater gives. They even talk about not bringing a like super big book to read at the bar. You should just kind of, if you're going to bring a book, bring a small one, read a chapter, get in, get out. Uh, it also says be gracious for number four. Number five is be a regular. And number six is bring your friends. The second article even goes as far as to mention Ichiran, a Japanese restaurant chain where, quote, guests sit at individual walled booths and a ticket system ensures minimal interaction with servers. According to Hiroshi Kokobun, marketing coordinator for Ichiran USA, the concept was originally designed to, quote, let our customers focus on our ramen without worrying about their surroundings, end quote. There is another aspect to... Um, eating out that I totally relate to. Chicago chef Ryan McCaskey also play, pays particular attention to people eating alone in his two-star Michelin restaurant, Acadia, quote, but his initial motives for doing so weren't entirely about the customer. He says, you freak out because you think it's a Michelin inspector or Forbes or somebody reviewing us. So we want to pay extra attention to those solo diners, end quote. And totally, we would freak out, like, we would freak out so hard if a well-dressed single international diner came to eat at the restaurant I worked at in Norway. It was just always assumed we were getting reviewed, uh, so it's just funny to hear that perspective from another chef. Uh, McCaskey now saying that he does not do special treatment as much anymore, but I, I still think it's funny to hear. <clears throat> 
Next up, a story from Ben Leventhal, who is a serial entrepreneur, and he is the owner of Resi, which is an app that partnered with Airbnb a few months ago and seated 28 million diners in 125 cities in the U.S. in 2017. It is an article he published on Medium talking all about technology in restaurants. So, of course, you know I had to cover this. Uh, I love my technology. He starts off by talking about change and restaurants' ability to embrace change, to adapt uh, to what it's like to own a place in 2019, 2021, 2023. So, the points are, drumroll, data, third revenue channel, meaning just not to have a dining room and catering, but a third revenue stream. That's why I talk about things like content and uh, sponsorships and packaged food and and all that stuff that we've talked about before on this channel. The 360-degree feedback loop, which basically means leaving an articulated review from the guest on all aspects, from lighting to music to pace to price, combined with A-B testing and context from the restaurant. It's not really that specific, but he mentions it in the article. Point number four is unbridling of unbundling of demand using the example of Dominique Crenn, a chef in San Francisco, who we also covered on the show before, partnering with American Express to reserve tables for Amex cardholders. Uh, at the end uh, uh, of the article, they talk about two other points. The end of cash is number five, and number six is the importance of the repeat customer. So for any of you that watch Shark Tank, they talk a lot about customer acquisition costs. The article says, quote, simply put, the longer a restaurant can retain a customer, the lower the per meal cost of acquiring that customer that customer becomes. The more profitable that customer becomes to the restaurant in turn. So How is this part about technology? It used to be that software only helped a restaurant earn a customer at booking. Now, because new software exists to manage and enhance every milestone along the customer journey from discovery to feedback to rebooking, the process of turning new customers into regulars is finally scalable, end quote. So overall, super interesting, just pieces that I'm paying attention to. I don't think there were real kind of like actionable points for anyone to implement into their business right away. A lot of it is definitely uh, for people to click on that article to be aware that Resi is a company that's keeping all of these points in mind as they're developing their software. It is a marketing piece in in the, in the, in the in layman's terms. But overall, just something that I, I enjoyed reading. Again, I don't have any huge takeaways for you guys on it, especially if you don't own a place and you you are in the tech tech software business. But yeah, I just like covering these pieces because I like paying attention to it and knowing exactly what these trends are. Quickie story, real quick, uh, Belinda Long, who is the owner of Bee Patisserie, friend of my friend Hubert, is expanding like crazy. She's starting a San Francisco mochi company. And she's expanding beet patisserie to Korea. So she's going to have a location in Seoul. Uh, just talking about her shop really makes me want a Queen Yaman. Her stuff is amazing. It is just a really great example of getting good at one thing really well. She started off basically just doing her Queen Yamans and chocolate Queen Yamans, And then expanding slowly, building a community and looking at where the demand is. And then just focusing on, on, on her and what she does best. And not really caring about what other people think. Um... The flavors, by the way, at her Mochi Mochi pop-up include horchata, baklava, Boston cream, berry cream cheese, and chocolate almond. So that's currently only in the pop-up phase. She is looking to expand that into a brick-and-mortar location eventually. So last up, a question from you guys. I guess it's several questions. If one of you guys wants to name this section of the show, I would love to have there be a kind of semi-sarcastic tongue-in-cheek name for this Q&A section of the show. Uh, A little bit of a play on the emulsion, if you can think of something creative. Um, 
But shout out to Oscar Castaño. Uh, hi, my name is Oscar underscore on Instagram. He's currently backpacking in South America and has some questions about staging. So I'm going to attempt to rapid fire these at my horribly slow and very specific rapid fire pace. So let's get into it. He says, uh, we're landing in Boston and probably be there for a month. Is there a restaurant in Boston that you recommend me to stage? I do not have any recommendations in Boston. I was supposed to go in November of last year, but I never made it. Uh, I have a couple of friends who are from there, but I don't have any recommendations for you to stage. If anybody that's listening right now is either in Boston or has any recommendations in uh, Boston, I 100% recommend that you leave those in the comments so Oscar can find them and uh, figure out where he should want to go stage. He says, as I told you before, I'm not traveling with my knives. Would that be okay if I show up with no knives? Or do you think the Victoria Knox you covered on your video would do the job? Uh, you have two choices. If you're cool with just buying it and not and just leaving it behind, you can totally like Amazon Prime two Victoria Knox knives to whatever wherever you're staying in whatever city you're in, uh, and then just use those knives for the stage. Um, because they're probably still going to be sharp the whole day of whatever you use them. Uh, they'll probably be okay for all the stage work that you're going to have to do. Uh, and then you don't really worry about it because it's like 50 bucks of knives. You just uh, get rid of them or gift them to some cook at the at the restaurant. Just say like, hey, I bought these. Or could you just hold on to them for me when I come back if you want to come back or whatever. Um, I also mentioned this very specifically in a YouTube comment to Oscar, I think, that uh, as long as you make it very clear to the restaurant before you arrive that you you are traveling, you don't have any knives, uh, you're going to need to borrow some. I have no doubt that whatever restaurant you stage at will actually be totally fine with you um, borrowing one of their cook's knives or the sous chef's knives or whatever. Um, where there's a problem is that if you just kind of show up day of and you're like, hey, by the way, I don't have any knives, that's kind of screwed up. If you in that email in those emails that you're sending them, you just say, hey, by the way. I'm not going to have any knives because I can't take them on the airplane, so is there a chance that you guys might be able to borrow me some tools while I'm there? I have no doubt that in exchange for the free labor that you're giving them, they, they will let you uh, use their tools, but that's just my advice. Uh, he says, any special skill you recommend I should develop if I want to make it into a Michelin star restaurant? Uh, there's a great book called Grit that you should read if you're really interested in um, getting that. It's called Grit. It's it's basically about perseverance and not caring what other people think. Uh, there's an intense amount of mental strength that is required to do well at a Michelin restaurant because there is a lot of uh, high stress pressure um, that happens in these kitchens. So the faster that you can develop that mental toughness, the better off you're going to be which is a skill. I definitely would categorize that as a skill. As far as like making an omelet or like whisking a hollandaise or whatever, I, I firmly believe that you can learn all of those techniques through trial and error. And if the restaurant expects you to perform at that level, you and if you want it bad enough, you will learn the techniques that they're asking you to, to learn fast enough. So there isn't like a specific technique. You can um, just get faster I guess, at setting up an organization. That's, again, why I mentioned that my prep list is so important. Uh, organization and mental toughness is way more valuable than knife skills uh, when it comes to being a line cook. So those are two things that I would really recommend you dive a little bit deeper into and grow those skills um, if you, quote, want to make it into a Michelin star restaurant. Uh, I know I probably won't make it to Alinea or Grace once I get to Chicago. Grace closed, bro. Don't you watch this show? Uh, he says, but I hope I can make it to a one-star at least. 
He says, how does it feel working at Noma? Noma is, well, was, I don't know how it is now, but Noma was crazy. Uh, it was a lot of people. There was, I think, 14 of us stagiaires. I was there for a week or two weeks. It was, uh, it was a lot. You would show up. Um, the first day, I think I showed up at 9 a.m., stayed until 1 in the morning. And then the line cook that I was paired up with was like, hey, do you want to show up at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning? Which is just nuts. So it's like you go. You, by the time you go home, you get six hours of sleep. You wake up and you literally go straight back to the restaurant. It is a lot of hours. Uh, I, I I feel like it's probably a little bit more sustainable now, but uh, it was a lot of what did we do? We opened scallops. We uh, picked apart pickled rose petals. We cleaned celery root. Uh, cleaned moss. Plated for some private events. Uh, I worked snack station for a little while. Um, it feels cool to, to, to just be around people that are thinking about food in that way. Um, the Saturday night projects that they did for a long time was fascinating. It was really, really cool to see, uh, all of that and the creativity that comes from people who are just like-minded like you, who, who just love fine dining restaurants, who really love the, 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 the execution of, of nice food. It is definitely intense. Um, but that was also back when Matt Orlando was chef de cuisine there. So that was a long time ago. I feel like that was right after I was at per se. Uh, what else, what else does he ask? What was the best lesson or thing you'd, uh, I'm thankful about working there. Um, some of the connections I made, I love that, uh, there's a couple of people that I still keep in touch with from that experience, even though it was just two weeks. The fact that you spend so much time together with these people, you spend like a hundred hours a week with these people, maybe not quite a hundred, but it's a lot of hours. So you get to make a lot of cool friends. Um, especially on the stagiaire side, thought it was really interesting. Uh, and everyone's there for the same reason. Like I said, it's just a bunch of like-minded people together. So it's really, really fun. Uh, how did I get there? Is there any downside about, uh, about staging at a Michelin restaurant? If you don't like the work, it's going to suck. Uh, that's just how it is. If you don't like cutting celery into tiny cubes you're not really going to enjoy it or if you um don't actually like uh cooking all night long that's that's what it is you are a cog in a machine and that is what you're expected to do the restaurant wouldn't function the way that it did if everyone was a free thinking uh organism there has to be some sort of dictatorship in that kind of i mean think about like Cirque du Soleil right like if Cirque du Soleil was just like every single person could just do whatever trick they wanted to do uh, it wouldn't be an orchestrated show. So you have to think about the fact that like the, whoever is running the show has everybody in a very specific place for a very specific reason. And that's how the machine continues to run like it does and consistently provide guests with good experiences. So once you wrap your head around that, if you can helicopter up and see that, then you can start to get a little bit of appreciation for the repetitive nature of the, of the, the job sometimes. Uh, what's something you'd never do in a Michelin kitchen? I would never scumbag someone. I would never throw someone under the bus in the way of like blaming someone for something that I did. I'm very, very good at admitting when I did something wrong. Um, something I'd never do as far as like prep work. Eh, there isn't a lot. I've done a lot. I've cleaned out dumpsters. I've swept up guts. I've, <laughs> uh, dealt with rotten fish it's like there's a lot of stuff that i i'm totally fine with i don't really get grossed out that easily but uh yeah it's about it's a relationship thing right like you shouldn't um 
be you shouldn't scumbag people, man. That's that's just the that's just the main thing of it, right? Like it's a it's a trust thing. Um, and he says, sorry if there are too many. If you're able to just answer some of them, that'd be awesome. Cheers. Well, I hope that answered uh, those questions. I am grateful for you sending them to me, and I'm hope I hope they uh, provided you a little bit of value, um, and not just you, but all the other people listening. That's the whole point of me answering uh, on this show. So. To get into it, finally, our non-industry story of the week. If you guys like hip-hop, I just discovered this guy a couple weeks ago on YouTube uh, named Dax. He played basketball forever, and he just changed careers to be in the rap game. He has been killing it on YouTube doing diss tracks of other YouTubers, spitting straight fire on other popular songs' beats. I'm just a fan of his swagger and his confidence and how he does his videos, his kind of strategy on breaking out in this noisy world. I wish, folks, I wish I could rap. I want to do a rap video someday, like a real rap music video. I want to write my own song, even if it's a cover to start, but I want to do a rap video someday. But if you like hip-hop, either when you prep or when you're commuting or when you're working out, check out Dax, D-A-X. I recommend starting with his Mask Off remix or his cover of Shape of You by Ed Sheeran. You can just thank me later after you listen to that. So with that, this has been episode 52 of The Emulsion. Thank you so much for listening. If you have stories you want covered on next week's show, shoot them to me on Twitter and hashtag The Emulsion so I can find them. I am super serious about this one. A lot of you send me a Facebook message or an Instagram DM, but if you put it on Twitter and hashtag The Emulsion, that's where I search before I record the episode. My mind is like a goldfish. I will forget instantly if you uh, send me a story and you don't put it on Twitter. So if you really do want it covered, even if you're commenting on YouTube, at me on Twitter, Justin underscore Kana, and hashtag the emulsion, then I can promise that your story will get in the episode. So subscribe to this uh, podcast if you aren't already. Definitely leave a thumbs up on this video if you're watching there or consider relieving, re, 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 reviewing this on iTunes five stars. If you listen there, regardless of where you are, I appreciate your ears. So thank you. Thank you so much. My name is Justin Kana. Have a good one.